Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I am Eric. And today we're reading Short and Deep, and then The Silence by Ray Bradbury, later published as The Silence, and then basically forgotten until uh, a uh, J- Japanese publication in the 70s, and then there was a uh, critical edition um, from 2011 that collected uh, all of Bradbury's fiction from 1938 to 1943. So this is a a pretty obscure Ray Bradbury story. Um, I figured it was going to be just starting to read it. I figured it was going to be another Mars story because there's a lot of Mars stories that are not in the Martian Chronicles, but that are basically Martian Chronicle stories. But this is not that exactly. <laughs> yeah, uh, you confused me a minute there, Jesse, in your bibliographic background. You said that there was a critical edition of his of Bradbury's stories from uh, uh, through 1943. Mm-hmm. I thought that the uh, first publication of this story was 1944. It is 1944, but they've collected it in a book, Volume 1, 1938 to 1943. Um, so, uh, can it be explained? Probably. Um, but they also have... It's a time travel story. It's kind of weird, because they have, like, um, 1947 stories in there, too. I'm not sure. Maybe they're going by when it was written. It's... Mm. I've not got a copy of this, of this critical edition from, uh, 2011. Um, it's volume one in a series. Um, there, this is not the story, you know, that's a published at Kent State University, so it's not a, um... Uh, a popular volume as opposed to uh you know an academic volume is is my thinking so basically this story has been ignored other than that japanese publication a republication in the same magazine in a different uh country um i'll talk a little bit about that if you don't mind um, I'd like it. Sure. So, uh, Super Science Stories, which is where it was first published, October '44, um, was a Canadian magazine. This is uh, due to some technical restrictions on paper during the World War II um, in Canada. If you wanted to publish uh, magazines, you couldn't. There was basically uh, technical reasons for creating volumes to be sold in Canada. Um, as Canadian issues. So this is a a temporary Canadian magazine, and then uh, they're making content for it, some of which will show up in U.S. magazines later. So Super Science Stories, January 1949, which is an American magazine, um, they have the same title. The only way you would know is to look at the uh, publication place. It says Toronto and Montreal on the table of contents. Um, contains the exact same story, uh, with a title change to The Silence, and they added uh, some, I think it's Hans Bach art. Yes, beautiful Hans Bach art. Um, so Canadians got to read this in 44, Americans got to read it in 49, and then the Japanese in 72, and then basically <laughs> nobody until you and me in 2021. We are lucky. We are. I, 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 like, I can't believe that this story is just sat on... Rad for so long because it's pretty interesting. 
Beautiful, too. Want to hear it? I do. And then the silence. We let them come in. They set their long silver ships down in the valleys, on the plateaus and plains. We let them come in without moving against them. All of us watched and waited and communicated to ourselves about the invaders. It was almost a joke. We knew they were coming. Yes, we knew. We heard them coming across space. We counted 1,000 of their projectiles shooting through the void. They were running away from something. They had to run. Their planet, which they called Earth, was no longer habitable. They built ships and escaped from Earth before it was too late. We all saw them land, and we heard the vibration of their sharp, unthinking words. They had a leader, a tall man with lean steel shoulders and a white, quiet face. He spoke to his people about the trip the sacrifice, the new world to live upon. The scale of his voice vibration was this. We are here through the grace of God. We have surmounted incredible obstacles and found our new world. We are indeed fortunate that this new world is uninhabited. It is good that we need not fight alien peoples for the right to land here. We have come down in peace upon a light green paradise where there is nothing but the sound of air, light, and earth, of water and winds and mountains. We didn't particularly want to kill this man. His name was Monroe, but we knew he would have to pay the penalty of being one of his kind. It was the other man who was an irritant, a fleshy molecule of quick, bitter incorrigibility. Sure, sure, he said rapidly. This is a setup. No Indians to fight, no Germans dive-bombing us. A sweet setup. Why, listen, Monroe, in six months we can have this dinky hunk of earth revamped into a damn fine facsimile of New York, Chicago, and all points west. Watch our steam. The other humans made loud cheering noises. It came out of their lungs and throats, and it seemed senseless. Monroe said nothing. We waited. We had our task set out for us. We didn't want the humans to escape again, like they escaped from Earth at the threat of annihilation. We wanted them to settle down, to build and get contented and easy in their life. We wanted them to allow their spaceships to rust, idling away. We could wait. We had all the time in this timeless universe. We remembered vibrations of quick, sharp voices. Beyond the watch, Carlson, there may be nomadic tribes of people on this world. There may be strange diseases and stranger animals. We can't have any wars now. We can't afford war. Yes, sir. I'll watch. I'll watch close. And they did watch. But they didn't see anything. They walked in pairs, male and female. They stood on mountains. They strolled in wild, brushed gullies near naked, dry sand river hollows. They smelled the keen-edged air of Zotan like vigorous wine. They saw a sun go up in the sky and come down in the sky. And they saw the stars wheel with cosmic majesty from horizon to horizon. They saw seasons come and go. And at last, they were very sure there was no danger. That was what we had anticipated. They thought they owned Zotan. 
They thought it was theirs for good and all. They made many words about it, printed and spoken. They sang ballads about it, toasted it in liquors, dreamed of it in dreams. We let the first generation and the second generation die of its own accord from its own inherent diseases, its cultural conflicts and social degenerations. We let them build far and wide their web and shuttle and vice of steel. They put boats on the rivers. They put planes in the sky. They put moles in the ground. They put holes in the ground. They put their dead in the ground, too. And all the while, we waited and watched for the proper time. We knew them for what they were, the senseless little motes of electrical mobility called animal life. Who moved without the cosmic motion? Who moved for no reason in no particular direction and made chaos with their flesh mouths about their insensible wildness? We knew them for the final fragments of humanity racing from one world to the next in an insane attempt to survive. And now when they were settled fine and neat, when they lived in their metal homes and traveled in metal cars, now then it was the precise time for us to act. The mere curious of them may have prophesied something by the simple act of perceiving the quiver of a tree branch or the tongue of wet salt green lapping along the soundless shores of the sea or the movement of the wind ever so slight but those things are so natural. In fact, they are the only natural rhythmical things in the universe where they have taken their place. In fact, they are the only natural rhythmic things in the universe where they have taken their place. All else is unnatural and therefore must not long exist. The night before it happened, we communicated about it. We agreed, all of us, that the invaders would be taken unaware. We, like an amoeba, had taken them into our heart. Now they were the nucleus. All we had to do to destroy them would be to constrict our pseudopods. One cosmic movement. It was a fine, warm spring morning. The sky was polished and shining, and the ships of men went across that sky like flecks of dream stuff. People were walking and talking and living the warm life. There was laughter, and there was songs. And then the mountains moved. And then the sky constricted like a blue fist, and then the rivers tore wild in a torrent from their ridges. The earth crumbled, trembling. The sun glowed hot and violent. Man and his cities were in the nucleus of all this. We killed them. We crushed them and destroyed them. Every one of them. Every one. Not one escaped. It was a triumph of nature. It was so carefully blueprinted and carried to fruition, we killed them. And now Zotan is quiet again. Quiet in the yellow sun, quiet in the winds from all the seas and far mountains, quiet like the spreading snow on hills in winter, like ice locking the waters of a creek. So quiet, oh, in the name of God, so very quiet. You who read this, in some far distant galactic sphere, look about you. Think of the sun, 
and the sky and the world beneath your fleshy limbs. Think long and think deep. Are the rivers running too swiftly this spring? Is the sun too warm in the summer? Are the winds too keen in the autumns? Is the snow too deep in the winter? Perhaps, perhaps you are living upon another Zotan. Both uh, both versions from Super Science Stories uh, have an, the same editorial introduction. Um, I will just read that because that's what the editor thought would intrigue the reader. You who read this, look about you. Think of the sun and the sky and the world you know. Think long and think deep because someday you will lose it all like Zotan did. Now... <laughs> <laughs> What's funny is that Zotan didn't lose anything. Um, <laughs> but the, those words are, you know, inspired by the story itself. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, Zotan didn't lose anything. Um, it's slightly different in the subsequent publication in the 1949 issue of Super Science Stories. Um, you who read this, look about you. Think of the sun and the sky and the world you know. Think long and think deep. Are you really the dominant race on your planet? And uh, that is also not exactly right either, because um, I, I, I love the name Zotan. It's not Mars. Mars is something we can see in the sky, although maybe like uh, humans call Mars Mars, but the Martians call Mars Barsoom. Maybe uh-huh. <laughs> Zotan is a planet we know, but I don't think that's the point of this story, that, you know, it's a specific planet in the sky. Um, because uh, I noted uh, there's only one named person in the story, right? Uh, or maybe two, yeah. Uh, Monroe. Monroe and Carlson. Carlson. Um, and also, uh, Carlson. Carlson's the bad guy, but they're both killed, right? Um, no, no, no. Carlson is the uh, is the subaltern who says he'll keep a lookout. The guy who just wants to do stuff, I think, is not named. Uh, well, let me re- let me read that uh, section here, and I think it's interesting because I think this is not so much about Zotan as it is about um, North America <laughs> and um, and uh, the time in p- which it's written. We are here through the grace of God. We have surmounted incredible obstacles and found our new world. Uh, I've underlined that because it comes up again. Um, Then, we are indeed fortunate that this new world is uninhabited. New world, new world, right? It is Mm -hmm. good that we need not fight alien peoples for the right to land here. We have come down in peace upon a light green paradise where there is nothing but the sound of air, light, and earth of water and winds and mountains. We didn't particularly want to kill this man. His name was Monroe. But we knew he would have to pay the penalty of being one of his kind. Um, I'm starting to read this as like a... Uh, a prediction? <laughs> um, because Monroe makes me think of Monroe the President and the Monroe Doctrine. This is something we covered uh, in a Donald Westlake story called Give Me Liberty. Um, it's inferred that the Monroe Doctrine was a 
terrible thing for the United States. Um, but then we get this description of the other man. It was the other man who was an irritant, a fleshy molecule of quick, bitter incorrigibility. And he's not talking to the Zotonians here, whoever they are. Rather, he's talking to Monroe. Sure, sure. Which means no, right? <laughs> he said <laughs> right. rapidly, this is a setup. No Indians to fight, no Germans dive-bombing us. A sweet setup. And he's repeating that. A setup, a setup. There's a lot of repetition in this story. Why listen, Monroe? In six months, we can have this dinky hunk of earth revamped into a damned fine facsimile of New York, Chicago, and all points west. Watch our steam. So he's dismissive of Monroe um, and saying that this place isn't that great, also it's a lie, and also we're going to make it just like the place we came from. Right. Um, right. And then the humans... Which notices America. Oh, yes. And then the humans set about doing their business over a course of a couple of generations. And the Zotonians in their... <laughs> I'm calling them Zotonians because there's the narrator is saying we, right? But... Who they are and what they are is uh, left mostly to our imagination. But I kind of think of this as like uh, Ray Bradbury doing H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, as in, this is about deep time and about uh, our minuscule size in the universe. And that it isn't going to be disease or political conflict that kills us ultimately. But rather... It's going to be just time and earthquakes and planetary destruction, winds and all the things that we are too small to avoid and ultimately will be wiped out. Um, but it, it seems like, it seems like uh, the Zotonians aren't too upset about it. <laughs> which oh, is kind of weird. Zotonians want it. Yeah. Yeah. And, right. and they, they from the beginning they want to get rid of the earthlings. But not for for despoiling the planet as much as it's just what we do. I think. It's in, it's interesting. Well, it doesn't they, say they, what it does. They call them they call them invaders. Yep. Um that's the first way in which they are uh denominated so whether this is post hoc and they've decided they're invaders um is i think put aside which is we we understood that we had to get rid of them before they ever got here we were able to sense them across space mm -hmm. and we're already waiting to uh, to lull them to sleep uh, reminiscent of mars's heaven uh, mm -hmm. or as it's reprinted in the Martian Chronicles um, in a slightly altered version, April 2000, the third expedition, uh, where the, the Earth astronauts um, land on Mars, are lulled into happiness by seeing a facsimile of a small Midwestern town, and uh, in the sleep, the, their dead relatives, who are supposedly alive there, Mars is heaven, um, turn and kill them. Mm -hmm. uh, so they get lulled to sleep. Um, I, I think these people want to get rid of the Earth, the the humans, 
long before um, they ever have a chance to see that they would despoil anything. Yeah, it says, we didn't particularly want to kill this man, and his name was Monroe, but we knew he would have to pay the penalty of being one of his kind. So it's put in terms of, of, you know, punishment, but being one of our kinds is being mortal. Being the kind of empires die, people, individuals die, generations die. They didn't kill Monroe. They killed his species. They let the first generation and the second generation live. Yeah, I like the story a lot, in part because it's um, it, it, it's lyrically written. Oh yes, I, I like the control of the language, and I like it a lot because it's reminiscent of a lot of things in Bradbury and some things that um, recall quite un-Bradbury-like stories by other people at the same period. So, from a a literary historical viewpoint, I find it a very interesting story. But I have to say, I can see why it wasn't reprinted, because ultimately I think it's a confused story. Um, I don't think the, the, as you call them, Zotonians want to uh, to destroy the species um, uh, and other species. I think that the, the Earthlings and the Zotonians aren't two different species. I think they are two different orders of being. Yes. They are ontologically different. Yes. And in, in, given that, and as you said, they, the Zotonians, they just somehow want Zoton to go back to whatever it was. As Zotonians, you kind of have to wonder, how do they know what a spring morning is? How mm-hmm. do they understand uh, what wine feels like? How do they understand uh, a fine breeze? Uh, those are all things of the flesh. And so these Sotonians, if whatever their ontology might be, whatever nature of being they are, um, seem somehow to be able to to fully sense whatever it is that that human sense, and then to simply crush them out of existence without any sense whatsoever that this is painful. It doesn't make a lot of sense. If they could sense them all the way across the galaxy, or galaxies, or we don't know how far these mm. thousand ships are traveling, um, and know that they want to kill them, and they can actually warp a whole planet by their their sense of interment, whatever that amoeba metaphor stands for. Mm-hmm. Why do they let them get to Zotan at all? Or once they get to Zotan, why do they let them have airplanes <laughs> going through the sky? I mean, why would one think that a species that has survived by launching a thousand so-called projectiles across the galaxy would then think, oh, well, we don't need to bother having any backups. We will not seek any other planets to inhabit. We won't. I mean, what? that's crazy. It's just so it doesn't make sense as a logical conflict between one kind of thing and another. Mm-hmm. I think a much better way of handling that um, would be a book like Tom Dish's The Genocides, where the aliens are, who come to Earth to use it as, a, as farmland are so absolutely um, superior to humans that they actually don't notice humans the way we don't notice 
you know, slugs burrowing underground. Um, that's not what's going on here. Um, and so I, I like it. This, this story is mellifluous. It's resonant uh, in literary historical terms. It, it certainly is taking pot shots at American culture, um, which are amusing. But finally, I can see why it wasn't reprinted. Mars's, the Martian Chronicles takes some of these things like coming down to a new paradise, which was uninhabited, um, and getting, you know, this time we don't have to deal with Indians and so mm-hmm. on, so we don't have that original sin of genocide or slavery. Um, Martian Chronicles doesn't handle that perfectly, but it handles it a heck of a lot better than this does, I think. There's um, There's definitely a kind of conflict and i understand why you you point to it or sort of muddle-mindedness in in it but uh, i agree that they're calling them zotonians make it makes it sound like they're like creatures hiding behind the trees that the humans aren't noticing right (laughs) what it really is i think a better way to understand it would be this is like forces of nature like gravitation and uh light and um you know uh, all the all the parts of science that we can infer uh and measure but are more distant from us than uh tree bark that we might examine we examine the tree and we see uh, it has this kind of bark it has this kind of leaves we can see it over time but being unable to know why the tree grows up <laughs> rather than to the yep. side right so that's it's it's a miss it's our misunderstanding to think of them as creatures they say we <laughs> but also who are they telling us they're telling us uh as it says at the end right um are the rivers running too swiftly this spring? Is the sun too warm in the summer? Are the winds too keen in the autumns? Is the snow too deep in the winter? So these are all environmental uh, cues, right? Well, we might say this, ooh, it's a climate change story. I'm like, meh, maybe. But the last line is, perhaps, perhaps you are living upon another Zotan. And to me, I think it's so amazing. We have... Uh, uh, robots on Mars. There's a new helicopter on Mars, right? Yep. And uh, we can put a microphone there and listen to the wind and then have that transmitted to the Earth and people can hear the sound of a Martian wind. That's amazing. But the planet has sat there for millions upon billions of years with the wind blowing and no one hearing it. And that is the true story of Mars. The fact that some humans on a faraway planet can listen to it not that interesting but if we sent our people to live there not on ray bradbury's mars where people can breathe the thin air and visit the martian cities but the actual mars it wouldn't be very good (laughs) we can't breathe the air the gravitation is too low there's almost no water even worse there's almost no nitrogen and we need that in our air and in our plants. Where are we going to get that from? So the truth is, is it would be very difficult. And it seems everywhere we look in the universe, 
it seems like there is no other place to go. Every planet we look at has too high a gravity or no uh, no protection from the solar winds, right? Uh, too much radiation, not enough <laughs> not enough air, too much air, no matter where we go in the universe with our telescopes and our inferences, all we see is places that will kill us. And so, if we look at it that way, the Zetonians are nature. And the particular paragraph I highlighted for understanding their real thought processes, rather than, you know, this poetic inference of what nature is, is, uh, it's on the last page, uh, it's on page 77. It says, um, it's near the bottom. We knew them for what they were, the senseless little motes of electrical mobility called animal life. So that tells us that the Zetonians are not animal life, who moved with, without the cosmic motion. Well, cosmic motion is caused by gravity. Who moved for no reason in no particular direction and made chaos with their flesh mouths and their insensible wildness. We knew them for the final fragments of humanity racing from one world to the next in an insane attempt to survive. And it is insane to think that we're going to move to Mars and live there because (laughs) we'd have to radically change the planet or do what we do in Antarctica, which is import everything. Right? So that's pretty scary. I, I'm, I'm with you on this, Jesse, but I have to say that um, from my viewpoint, you're building uh, my argument. that This is ultimately a confused story. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I think of, uh, of bees and ants and snakes and fish, um, protozoa. I, I think of them as part of nature. This is a very interesting nature that that Bradbury is asking us to infer here. He's asking us to infer a nature that looks really nice in landscape pictures, mm-hmm. but has zero animal life. You don't even have a cow in a field. Right. You don't have a bird in the sky. Uh, nature that has no animal life doesn't follow anything like scientific evolution. If you want to think of the planets that are habitable, the one that we know is habitable, in fact, evolved animal life in many, many ways, many times. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's something, uh, Bradbury himself, as we both have commented to each other, has said he's really not a science fiction writer, he's a fantasy writer. And I think you can see the difference uh, between a fantasy writer and a science fiction writer by thinking of that thousand ships that are escaping Earth because they've done something bad there and they have to go out. The first published story by Arthur C. Clarke is called Rescue Party. It's very first, 1946. So it's two years after this, and for all I know, Clarke read this story. Um, since he was in England, perhaps he did have access to some Canadian science fiction. I know he was reading used copies of American science fiction mm-hmm. magazines at that time in his life. In Rescue Party... The human race has destroyed, they, they know that the, the sun is going nova, they have to get out, but 
galactic beings who are part of a galactic federation who are all benevolent. It's like the perfect United Nations um, have realized this and are sending their ships to go and rescue them. But as they approach, they see tiny, tiny little rocket ships, thousands of them leaving. And they are astonished that they are propelled at their projectiles with with fuel, you know, like rockets. They're, they're not even, you know, going through anti-gravity stuff. You know, like how could these puny little tiny things even imagine that they could survive by doing this? And as they're approaching, the the dialogue is between people on one of the rescue ships that's being sent, and they're seeing these things coming toward them, you know, across parsecs. Um, and one says to the other, I wonder what they'll be like. Will they be an- nothing but wonderful engineers with no art or philosophy? They're going to have such a surprise when Aristron reaches them. That is the guy who's coming to rescue them in, in a big ship. I expect it will be rather a blow to their pride. It's funny how all isolated races think that they're the only people in the universe. But they should be grateful to us. We're going to al- save them a good many hundred years of travel. Alvaron glanced at the Milky Way, lying like a veil of silver mist across the vision screen. He waved toward it with a sweep of a tentacle that embraced the whole circle of the galaxy, (laughs) from the central planets to the lonely suns of the rim. You know, he said to Rugon, I feel rather afraid of these people. Suppose they don't like our our little federation. He waved once more toward the star clouds that lay massed across the screen, glowing with the light of their countless suns. Something tells me they'll be very determined people, he added. We had better be polite to them. (laughs) After all, we only outnumber them about a thousand million to one. (laughs) Rugon laughed at his captain's little joke. Twenty years afterward... The remark didn't seem funny. Mm. Yeah. Now, Rescue Party is a well-designed, integrated story. It has that same central image, but instead of going off into a confused fairy tale, um, it focuses on one aspect, and that aspect has to do with what it means for humanity to be constantly using things up. To, to meet the universe aggressively. That's not really handled here. No. Uh, do we believe at the end of And Then the Silence that the Zotonians have made this story available so that <laughs> other animal life will read it, no. take a warning, and decide to kill themselves? No. No. <laughs> no. So I like the story. You like the story. Um but I, for one, understand why it wasn't reprinted. It's evocative. It's lyrical. But to my mind, it's a bit of a hodgepodge. So um, I, I was thinking about... Uh, I wasn't thinking about that specific story, but I was thinking of another story with a thousand ships. And uh, I think that, that probably that that's where both guys got the idea for a thousand ships. Um, the face that launched the shou- thousand ships was called Helen, um, we're told. And uh, it went off to uh, make war on a city for ten years. And then uh, 
take a 10-year journey to get home for some of them. Um, and a, a generation's uh, change in the return journey for one of the... <laughs> just avoiding talking about who this is, right? This is Odysseus going off to fight the uh, Trojan War and then coming back 20 years later to find uh, his, his uh, dog... Uh, 20 years older, barely alive, just enough to recognize his master and die. His son, all grown up, his his uh, wife fending off suitors. Um, that trip was useless and harmful for Odysseus. Here, the Zotonians, or, or the narrator, is saying, yeah, it's very nice that you came to our planet, but, you know, you're not going to escape the death that that is everywhere. And uh, I, I think of it as kind of like a, a cosmic uh, comment. And Bradbury's doing it in... It's, it's interesting. And thinking about all the... It, I don't think of the, the Martian Chronicles as a, a unified story. I think of them as the individual stories. And what does he do over and over again? He says, Mars won't work. Mars won't work. And he has a series of failures, right? And here we have a place where we're going to remake the world that we have and it seems right. Carlson is right. They do remake the world. And whatever happened on Earth also happened here. Well, we have a disagreement here. I see the Martian Chronicles as a as a composite novel, um, and uh, and I think Carlson isn't the name of the guy who's rebuilding it. I think he's a subaltern, but we agree that the story, uh, amazingly, can even get us to think about Homer. And if that's true, there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening, and remember. You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.